Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstock, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. I'm going to pass it over first tonight to Spartan Grown. Hello, everybody. Thank you, Jack. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram, all one word, Spartan Grown, no spaces. Um, or if you don't do the social media, you can shoot me an email at spartangrown at gmail.com, and I can help you with all of your cannabis gardening questions. I'll leave it that way. It's the easiest way to say it. <laughs> Happy to have you back. Next up, we've got Matthew Gates. Everyone, this is Matthew Gates. I'm an integrated pest management specialist. So if you're interested in that kind of information, you can check me out on my Zenthanol YouTube channel, also on Twitter and Instagram at SyncAngel. Happy to have you back. Next up, we have Brandon Rust. You're still muted over there, Brandon. Oh, sorry. What's going on, everybody? Brandon Russ here. You can check me out um, on Instagram at Russ.Brandon and Bokashi Earthworks and www.bokashieearthworks.com. Um, uh, great to be here. And yeah, I'm, you know, as as always, it's uh, going to be fun. Happy to have you back. And last, who's currently with us, but certainly not least, Noah, the grower. How's it going, everybody? Uh, yeah, I'm no other girl. You can find me on Instagram there and, uh, happy to be here. We're happy to have you back. And hopefully we got a few more popping in here in a little bit. Um, cause I didn't hear anybody necessarily say that they weren't going to be here tonight, but they might be, uh, unable to join for one reason or another that they weren't able to share, which is totally reasonable. Tonight, we're going to be talking a little bit about a, what we'd call white paper or science research paper. This one's actually gonna be a little bit of a meta analysis. I sent to our group about an hour before the show started. But uh, I think that like Tao and a few others in the comments mentioned, when we see it raw, it kind of gives us the first impression that a lot of the listeners are going to have because they're not super familiar with the paper. But this one is talking about abiotic factors and how they might impact production uh, of like phytocannabinoid yields and things like, things of that nature. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen and I'll pull up the research article here. Oh, whoops. I'm going to keep it minimized here for a second. Click over to the actual article. Here we go. Now we'll go full screen. All right. So it's cannabis sativa L, crop management and abiotic factors that affect phytocannabinoid production. And so this was an interesting paper when I was looking through. It was done in 2022 in June. So this is a very modern research. And it talks about the main characteristic of cannabis sativa L is the production of compounds of medicinal interest known as phytocannabinoids, which many of us are aware of, you know, THC, CBD, and things of that sort, but as well as terpenes and other uh, minor cannabinoids. There's lots of interest in this. And so I figured it'd be interesting to go over. This actually isn't the full text though. So we're gonna hit view full text. Also, for anyone curious, the L means Linnaeus. It's the taxonomist who characterized it first. So they give him the little the name there. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I've always found them to be kind of only really helpful when, uh, anyways, I'll let you keep going, Jack. Well, no, I think it's uh, important to note, but even like the word sativa typically just means cultivated, like in garlic that you see like a set of them versus sativa, but it typically uh, characterizes that it is a cultivated variety, something that has been uh, impacted or kept by humans throughout time, whether it's heirloom land race or something that we've bred. Though um, I want to stress very much, since you mentioned it, that uh, 
just because a um, just because a taxonomist gives something a name, it's not necessarily deterministic. So usually when that happens, it's for like crops and things that we've grown for a long time. So it does happen to be true, but um, sometimes it's uh, not a relevant characteristic or even um, sort of a misnomer. Anyways, keep going. So just in the abstract, it says in this review, we aim to examine the current cannabis agronomic research topics to identify the available information and the main gaps that need to be filled in future research. This paper introduces the importance of cannabis sativa L approaching state-of-the-art research and evaluating the influence of crop management and environmental conditions on yield and phytocannabinoid production, including one, pruning, two, light, and plant density, three, ontogeny, four, temperature, altitude, and CO2 concentration, five, fertilization and substrate, uh, six, water availability, and presence, or presents concluding remarks to shed light on future directions. So uh, this paper essentially covers all of those different things, but instead of going over the entire uh, paper, which we can look at the main findings, things like that, I guess uh, it'd be interesting to sort of talk about the impacts of these different abiotic factors and not to placate the audience, but the difference between an abiotic factor and biotic factor is like non-living versus living experience, essentially. Uh, you've got, I guess I could just Google uh, abiotic factor. Well, it's like a uh, proper definition. But, well, I mean, I think I'm, I think I yeah, can you do can take it. it over. We don't want to spend time on it. Basically, yeah, like abiotic factors are like temperature, humidity, um, things that are not living that affect the plant. Biotic factors are the opposite. They're living things. Um, I would even I would even uh, include viruses in that uh, definition of biotic factors and microbes and insects and mites and and uh, I would also I think I would also even include the I might use a different term but you know the plant itself or other plants in tandem like in a crop or something you know those can have effects on each other too. I found it interesting that they lumped so many things together in a particular one number four temperature altitude and CO two concentration I guess. When you're looking at like natural cultivation, um, all three of those things are going to be included because based on the environment that you're cultivating, uh, that's you're going to take those measurements. So each cultivation site is going to have those factors kind of all uniform, essentially, per that location. But I feel like they can be examined individually, like temperature, altitude, and CO2 concentration. Like they could have been four, five, and six, and then seven oh. could have been fertilization. Well, they probably are separated. Oh, but you saw the paper, right? So, I mean. Yeah, it's, um, I guess they examined a few different papers that I have read through it. And these three are typically because they're looking at like outdoor cultivation sites. The thing that I guess we could jump through the introduction, there's a lot of just with any introduction background information about like the history and uh, issues of research and lack thereof. I think one uh, but, thing to highlight in that, though, Jack, that a lot of people aren't aware of is, and it highlighted in there, it's only with maybe one sentence, but they're talking about how the United Nations has even, it's on the second paragraph there, how the United Nations has even uh, downgraded its list on the danger and substance list, and the United States is still behind the United Nations. What the fuck is going <laughs> on? Yeah, I think there's definitely some politicization that's going on there, and uh, a lot of the rest of the world, whether it's Canada or uh, many parts of Europe, have moved forward with cannabis and allowed research and things like that to happen where we currently still have it federally illegal. So with that aside, I do think that um, 
this examines a lot of research from countries that actually have a little bit better policy towards uh, research and just understanding cannabis. So there's lots of different things that they've looked at, uh, including, you know, CBDA, CBGA, THCA, um, and just decarboxylated THC, which many of us uh, know and love. So I think uh, they even discuss the difference between pollinated um, by an individual plant versus like pollinated by many plants and the impact that that might have on phytocannabinoids and the terpene profiles and things like that. Here's, it says there's a misunderstanding that cross-pollination changes the chemotype of the plant. However, this change only appears in seeds resulting from the cross-pollination and not in the pollinated plant. So uh, I found that to be a little bit interesting, at least in this research, that is what they're claiming. But to get down a little bit further into the paper here, there, for those who don't know, a meta-analysis is looking at tons and tons of different studies and pulling all of the findings and kind of trying to draw conclusions from lots of different research. It's not one individual study. So this is looking at studies out of Canada, Israel, and some states in the EUA. Um, and so there's many different articles that were highlighted. And I guess this is just sort of to highlight the fact of a lot of us think of the biotic factors like the living things, the microbes, uh, the, the people that are actually cultivating the plant and uh, the other biotic factors, you know, like um, pests. Matthew deals a lot with pest management, molds, mildews, uh, viral, um, viroid, things like that. So it's important, I think, sometimes to acknowledge the abiotic factors and how important they might be. And there's a ton of research actually going on around those because many of them are not easy to measure, but um, measurable. And scientists will take the time to go through actually measuring all these different things. So uh, just continuing on, they talk about management techniques. Like one of the abiotic factors they're talking about was pruning and also uh, environmental controls such as uh, stress conditions, nutrient deficiency, competition, such as like planting too many plants in a single area uh, with other plants, uh, reduced water availability. Um, and they note that that could increase phytocannabinoid production, which I think that they're referring to the University of Guelph study that we've mentioned on here uh, probably dozens of times at this point. But it is interesting to see that they're considering that as part of one of the protocols. Um, sorry, I'm not the world's fastest reader here, but I did uh, research this. I should have given everybody a little bit of time, I guess, before. Here's a little bit of a figure. And That's it's talking about some of the possible effects on yield that you could have um, by pruning and the impacts like it has hormonal changes, manipulating the morphology, better light exposure, better air circulation, aid to pest management. These are uh, some review for a lot of us, I'm sure, but it's good to see scientists noting and acknowledging this in modern research so that it gets pushed out there to other researchers so that they can do some more proper research because I have another research paper that uh, I didn't share with the group, but it looks at like different ways to treat water and uh, how to keep, how, they, how it impacts the plants. And it was amazing again, to look at the unhealthiness of even like their untreated water control condition to see like their healthiest plant was okay at best. And all their other plants in the experimental controls looked like they're literally dying, like complete garbage. So it's uh, nice to see some good information, at least uh, being publicized for the research community out there. And uh, as a whole, people are moving in the right direction generally, I think. I'm going to close out this little diagram here. And if anybody has questions or comments or wants to jump in, I should probably also double check to make sure I, I'm going to hit stop right, share right for there, a second. Right there. Um, oh, right where okay, you were I'll, at. I'll reshare because I thought somebody <laughs> maybe jumped in 
to the zoom and i didn't want to have a panel member like waiting oh. in the uh <laughs> the whatever um waiting room not being able to join the call but go ahead spartan i like that in the um it's cited as 73 there at the end of that uh, third paragraph looks like down it says that the technique known as lollipopping did not influence the productivity of flowers or cannabinoids that's the bottom of that paragraph where you started to highlight and uh like I can see some people take that out of the subject, the last sentence in that paragraph that you first started highlighting. I can see someone take that out of context and say, oh, we don't need a lollipop because it's showing it doesn't uh, increase phytocannabinoids. Yes, but like with this paper, this paper does actually say this, I think in a little bit later on, but it says that there's three reasons why you would do manipulate plant manipulation and not just one. It could be to increase phytocannabinoids. It could be to increase i think they said they just said what we say increase airflow i can't remember the words they used airflow through the canopy i, th I believe is how they said it or to um, increase the yield so this is saying for one of these things lollipopping doesn't doesn't didn't show a correlation to being positive positive or negative um so this isn't saying lollipopping wasn't effective it just says it's not effective for increasing phytocannabinoids I think that's a good point to make. And uh, that at the very top of the paper, I kind of noted that they rightfully acknowledged that there's a lot of further research to be done. This is a lot of the early research and it's kind of a accepting um, or a conglomeration of a lot of different research. So it's giving us an overview of many of the different things that are being done as opposed to just picking on like one particular study, which is also fun to do and we can do either later tonight on the show or in future episodes. I, I do have one if we want to transition at some point, uh, ready to go, but, uh, you know, take your time, no rush. I'm just trying to get down to the results. It's a lot longer than I actually, on my computer scrolling and talking through it, um, than when I was reading it in my mind on my phone. Um, but plant density is another thing that they talk about. Uh, competition generally is one of the things. Ontogeny is something that is uh, newer to me. I haven't heard talked about too much. In the so ontogeny is how it came to be basically yeah jack can we pa oh, this is the last time i'll pause you but can, can we pause you and go back up a little bit where it's like 3.3 the paragraph before 3.3 plant density this was kind of a interesting thing to me the paragraph before that yeah uh i think it's like the first pair yeah the first the first or the second sentence and basically it's saying veg length and they're saying shorter suggesting here shorter veg length is better um does have a difference on the phytocannabinoid yield and that if you do a longer veg, you might be hurting your phytocannabinoid at the end. Well, I remember Noah Vigroa said this like years ago. He's like the little baby plants, the short veg produce the dankest bud sometimes, or maybe I'm misremembering, but I feel like Noah has said that a long, long time ago. So it's interesting that maybe there's some truth to be found in their research. Noah, do you remember mentioning that or did you ever have that kind of thought in mind? Oh yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I agree that. Um, I just think there's a point that eventually, like, if a plant gets too big, that it can just, I don't even know, like, maybe the root ball can't support it. Like, you know, there's just nothing science. It's just from seeing different plants. And I think there's also a happy medium, but you're right. The little plants, so long as they have the proper, you know, pot size for their, you know, for that root ball, you know, they can produce pretty well too. So, and it, it seems like also, like, it seems like the, the vigor of the, of the plant, of the, of the flower, is a little bit better when you don't stretch it out too much. You know, that's just my experience. 
some of my Danka spuds have been really short veg times and then quick flips on a tiny plant that just put out some amazingly dank buds on like what looks like a dwarf plant or almost like an autoflower and it's finishes in almost a similar or faster timeline like if you do a 30-day veg and cocoa flip to flower and you have a 64 day or 65 day flower period and you're under 100 days which is faster than we had dog doctor on and he had a 100 plus day mm-hmm. auto so from seed you can get photo period to have dank bud yield in under 100 days and um it might even be according to some of this research some of the the best stuff like that might be the way to go about doing it is uh and i also kind of because I saw people having success with smaller plants, I stopped vegging as long because one, I have a, a small place to grow in, but two, I hate lollipopping the, like having huge naked legs, like where I, I see people, half of their plant is bare stalk and the other half or, or less is buds. Maybe there's like only 25% of the plant left is producing buds and the whole bottom, like 50 to 75% is naked. And I think that that w- would be better spent uh, as a shorter veg time and just allowing the plant to, you know, grow and have more buds on it. But it, it really comes down to everybody's preferences and, and cultivation environment. But I remember definitely- on the previous paper that we talked about, um, you know, they'd mentioned that although their research report looked at like, you know, eight foot tall plants, right? They said way in the beginning of the intro that uh, smaller plants, you know, have a lot of qualities that make them better for exactly what we're talking about here. And, um, you know, I don't know, like, the why of it. I'm sure it's a question, there's multiple factors, but they did mention, like, the plant hormone nature of, like, how basically there's a lot more communication, like, time, right, between, like, the bottom and the top of the plant in different parts. So if everything's smaller, it's kind of like, um, you know, all the reactions are compacted, too, kind of, Um and I think that that makes a lot of sense, but it's not super intuitive because like with other plants, you know, you get them big and strong. You expect to have like a good fruit harvest or something like that. Um, but that's not always true either. Right. So it's sort of like um, you, know, you got to give them a little bit of that stress to some degree. Of course, you know, that's a loaded word, but um, like you said, plant manipulation, right? Like maybe if it's smaller, maybe if you're like, you know, you don't give it as much time to prep and then you, I'm of course kind of anthropomorphizing the plant when I say it that way, but you know, you it's give a living it thing. It's I a mean, living thing. Yeah. Living things do have responses to stresses. Right. Right. Exactly. And so perhaps like, it's like the, you know, it's like if you let the butterfly come out on its own, it has to pump in those fluids and get those wings up. If you free a butterfly out of its chrysalis, then that really important factor doesn't happen Right. And so then you have, um, at least in some cases, anyways, uh, you know, it's it's wings don't uh, develop and it it can't uh, fly. So I think there's a metaphor there. (laughs) For sure. And I think um, for those who are podcast listeners, this might be a episode where you want to check out the YouTube because I'm not going to go through and read off these entire uh, titles, but the sentences that Spartan was just referencing has five different research papers associated with it. And they're all cited 102 103 41 and then we've got over earlier 67 and 87 and i've hovered over them and it'll actually show you the author's names and the titles of the research papers that they're citing in this uh, meta-analysis so if you want to go and look deeper into any of the claims that are made in this paper i'll share this link 
on our YouTube after it's posted, as well as uh, you can go through and just Google some of these names when you hover over it, like Lenten S, uh, Frank, et cetera. And you can go through and check out the papers that these claims are coming from. So just as a reference for anybody out there who wants to do that further research later on. But yeah, uh, moving on a little bit, we've got the plant density. We were talking a little bit about that earlier. There's lots of claims. Um, I think Brandon probably has some experience with this lately growing in um, beds. And I'd be curious just uh, as we go on next to ontogeny before we get to that, Brandon, what are your thoughts on uh, like plant count per square foot? And uh, generally, do you have any thoughts on that sort of abiotic factor or how to optimize getting the right amount of plants in a bed so that they don't outcompete each other or um, have mold or things like that? That's it's a combination of both what you're after as far as your your production is concerned because well for instance in beds I would prefer to do short veg time and do more plants per square foot you know doing twelve to sixteen plants in a four by four area and only vegging them for maybe five days or right until they're acclimated into that bed. And then just flipping and then doing the plant maintenance that's required for that dense of a canopy. Because what you would be looking at like that is you wouldn't be topping anything, right? But then it so it's all about like the labor, what you're after, and and trying to for me, maximizing that if if we're talking about operating at scale. So if I want to get more harvest per year out of a room, but I'm running beds, I need to have a short veg time. So I could do more plants. And if I did that, I don't have the top, but if I was going to do more of a veg time, I would have to, you know, do more plant maintenance in veg. I'd have to top them, branch them out. I would do less plants to get the same, same thing, but I would, it would require more maintenance on the front end, like in the veg room before they go into beds. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's just, uh, you have to take all those different factors into consideration you know, because every different cultivation facility is different. And that's one of the things as like as a consultant, right? So I, it's not all people operating in beds either. You know, some people are, are doing this in uh, fabric pots. And so every system is a little bit different and you have to take that into consideration. Well, I actually just read a great paper um, that maybe we'll go into this later. It was called the case for <laughs> micro cultivation and local uh, cannabis cultivation because as we're seeing the increase in larger industrial scaling, a lot of uh, issues come along with that. And in many ways, I think the local market, it's often, whether uh, it's, uh, you know, boutique uh, agriculture or whatever, horticulture uh, can be served locally better than they can on a national scale many times by preference. And um, so it's a, uh, one of those things that sometimes the smaller scale can actually do a better job than the large scale. And maybe many people would argue that's always going to be the case as far as quality and consistency or artisanal type things like that. But uh, the plant density thing is definitely an interesting one. I'm going to pass it to Spartan, I guess, for a second, because I know that you have a plant count at home. And then at Mitten Can Co., I think you guys also had a plant count. And um, what's your general thought on plant density and how it would impact uh, cultivation and phytocannabinoid yield or just yield in general of dry flower? Well, that's... I think that um, your question kind of gave the answer right away. It's like, yeah, that, that because we're in a plant count state, it kind of ties our hands into 
growing bigger plants if we want to get bigger yield eventually if you hit all the other numbers the only other thing you have to do is to get more yield is to grow a bigger damn plant um because we're limited by plant count if we were limited by canopy space we could grow much smaller plants and just have a lot more plants but you know so that i think is the only reason why we're growing larger plants and um, i feel that if we were under a canopy size restriction then it would be smaller plants than what we grow i mean it was there was days that we i mean normally i would say the average plant is a little over five foot tall but uh, i would say we've had some six footers in there for sure and uh but i think the the more ideal plant would be like a four foot tall plant <laughs> or a three foot tall plant uh, but as you get smaller you add more plants to fill the space and you lessen the veg which this I'm with paper, you on that. You know, this as this paper kind of says, it's like it seems it seems like when you have the more plants too, that like if you if you have one plant that struggles, it's not as big a deal as if you have large plants. You, it's more of the putting all my eggs in one basket kind of a deal. Yeah, you can cut out a tiny plant and it's no issue, versus if you cut out a 10 pound like amendo dope, if they lost a plant, it'd be a fucking huge deal, right? Because they're yeah, such a monster. Yeah. Yeah, I want to also reiterate that just not to belabor the point, but I think there's one additional reason why people grow plants larger. I mean, there's others really, but one main reason is that, like I said earlier, it's kind of intuitive, right? You grow a big plant, you get big volume, you get lots of all the other things you want, right? But no, not, not necessarily. And so I do think that there's a large swath of people who um, you know, fall into that sort of intuition trap. Um, certainly I, I, you know, you know, when I, I, I would think that as well about a lot of things, um, especially, uh, like, I've, like I've said in the past, when I was first, you know, entering into this space more professionally, I'd, I'd read a lot and, and written a lot and had learned a lot about this already, but the fact that you can even have massive differences between varieties, right, you know, um, was something that I knew intellectually was true, but didn't appreciate as much until I started to work in a more commercial, you know, setup and sort of see all of those different factors, especially like with tomatoes and Gerbera and things like that. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's my little input there. I also saw another paper just to be in anybody's curiosity who likes to look into the stuff either now or later, there was one about grafting and how it increased uh, phytocannabinoid yield. I think it was for CBD plants and like a one-step graft. And uh, another one that we may touch on either later tonight or another date, but um, Spartan, I think it'd be interesting to see if Mitten Canico all of a sudden, let's say Michigan, for whatever reason, lifted the plant count thing. And then they said, hey, it's canopy now. And then they started saying, all right, we're going to go a little bit smaller and like, you know, veg our plants a little shorter and flip a little sooner. I wonder, like, because you guys have a, a pretty long legacy of cannabinoid testing at a certain lab so like let's say you had that downy burger that's hitting like 40 ish percent and uh then you start vegging it a little shorter i wonder if it would creep up to like 41 yeah. or maybe it would drop down to mid 30s and then we could have a little bit of our own research to compare well, at the same time what they didn't that they didn't divulge in this was they were looking at phytocannabinoid only and they weren't looking at terpenes terp so like was kind of i think i'm hoping the market will move towards is is uh wanting to know more about terpenes as well because i think those really modulate the high more than the cannabinoids in in some aspects so uh here in oklahoma uh it's required to have a terpene test for 
your product. That's awesome. I wish they would yeah, do that. Yeah, so it, it has to be on the package and everything else, just like the THC percentage. I like that. Soon enough, they'll add esters too. But I think, um, like, if you look at, like, wine, they only list the alcohol percentage. But a sommelier will be able to tell you, oh, this one's going to taste more tannic or more bitter or more fruity or more leathery or chocolatey or grapey, uh, whatever it is. And I had a bottle the other night with my wife and I smelled it and I go, Oh man, this is like boozy. I bet it's probably like a 14 or 16 percent. And I was fucking wrong. It was 12%, but the volatiles, the tannins and the other things in there, like the terpenes or whatever it is that was making it smell kind of like boozy, even though it wasn't a high alcohol percentage, it um, was, it was a red blend and it was a bunch of like bolder uh, California reds that have kind of like a very strong nose. And um, I think with cannabis, we'll start to see similar, like even if it only, is sold with um, THC percentages. We're going to start to see like the super high potency stuff and like the mid-grade potency because like a lot of people, uh, old school smokers actually can't handle some of the more honored stuff. Like they get panic attacks. They don't want to smoke it. They maybe want a little bit of CBD or maybe they want a 15 to 20 percent or not a 40 percenter uh, because it's just too much potency. So it's definitely a interesting proposition because uh, is max potency even the best thing? And one of the other things I failed to mention, even though I do think that the lab testing is getting better and better. Like they've only got like 40 labs here and they shut down like 10 of them and they're really expensive to get. So I don't think that people are like cheating them like people think. But one of the things that people are doing that I found out through my wife who works in the legal market is some of them, I thought, oh, well, they can't just infuse like a single bud and then send that bud in for the test. But some of them will take all of their key from their trim trays and then they reinfuse all of their buds. So they're essentially selling infused buds as non-infused because it bumps that 30% up to 35 or 35 up to a 40 because they're just throwing Keef into the total batch. And uh, that was kind of a tricky method. I think that might be why we're able to see these higher percentages coming around, even though testing is uh, a lot more stringent than it's ever been. But uh, moving on, I guess, uh, unless Noah, do you have any thoughts on the plant count uh, or plant density before we move to ontogeny? I'm going to take the silence as a no, maybe, from Noah the Grower, and uh, I'll pass it over to Matthew for ontogeny, because this is one that I'm definitely less familiar with, and um, it sounded like you wanted to jump in there when we started talking about this earlier. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I mean, they say right here at 3.4, first sentence reads, ontogeny is the entire sequence of events involved in the development of an organism, right? So, like, you know, when you develop as an embryo, right, or as a zygote even, you know, um, all of these aspects of development that happen, you know, in that span of time. Uh, and you might even include other other factors before that period of time. But, you know, usually we're talking about a sort of developmental stage. Uh, so it starts from seed and goes through different developmental stages, such as the seedling stage, the vegetative stage, and the reproductive stage, and ends at the senescence stage, right? Um, you know, I didn't read this, picture, this uh, article earlier, um, but yeah, I will reemphasize what Jack said. There are, as, as well as meta-analysis should, there's a ton of research papers that are referenced here um, at the end of you know, the third sentence from the end of this paragraph. Um, and they do say, they, there's, <laughs> there's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight studies uh, that are um, supporting this one statement, which is that the concentration of phytocannabinoids changes with the development of the plant, which is uh, pretty intuitive. 
It seems like a platitude, <laughs> right? But they have to have yeah. eight studies to support that, which is kind of crazy. But it just shows, look, at how, they say cannabis isn't researched enough yet, which is one of the biggest arguments against federal legalization. But like, look, they have eight studies to support the most simple statement, which means there was eight research articles all done just to be able to support in a different stage of growth like oh at seedling stage there's one type of cannabinoid at veg there's a different type of cannabinoid flower late flower early flower it's all different explain to me how they like i knew that intuitively but then when i hear of companies that will offer services to breeders for example and they'll uh, they will take a leaf tissue sample early on in veg and be able to tell you that oh this is a high thc plant or this is a high cbd plant or how are they able to tell what the final breakdown is going to be if it's changing throughout the life? Well, it's an estimation, I think. I think what they do is they look at some genes. I mean, I don't, I don't really know in great detail, and I'm sure it's different for different groups. But yeah, they're probably taking, uh, you know, a look at the genome maybe and seeing like maybe there's some some single nucleo. Uh, uh, there's markers. So there's, yeah, there's genomic market. markers. There's a guy, Reggie, um, from Steep Hill Labs. He is a genomicist, and he's been doing cannabis testing since the early 2000s. And they have terpene analysis as well as cannabinoid analysis for thousands of different cultivars that they have uh, stocked up in their banks or whatever. And then as soon as the genomics started coming around, they'd be able to say, okay, here's all of our analysis. Because like in Prop 215, since 1996, I want to say, in California, we've had legal medical cannabis, and a lot of it started getting tested from then till now. And um, as soon as genomics came around, they started tying certain markers. Like I was really interested in pinene. And he was saying that from like how a farmer Freeman test, you could take a, a cotyledon and, or uh, the first leaf sample and send that in. And they'll be able to say from the genomics that based on, you know, these other hundreds or thousands of cultivars that we have uh, had sampled when they're grown out all the way, that there's a potential that it will produce this and maybe this one never produced that like if you're looking at like uh og kush or something it might produce certain terpenes and esters and flavonoids and cannabinoids but then certain things maybe just never showed up even in hundreds or thousands of tests of that across several different grows so um, also oh sorry also i just want to say that um yeah like it's the the them putting all these studies here are not to be like see guys we knew it was controversial but here's the research no it's because as a as a matter of course when you do this kind of thing you want to make sure you're supporting your statements and if a statement happens to be super well uh, supported well you should probably um do that especially in a meta-analysis so it's not like uh, I just think it's really important that people know that the, the reason that they might be so um, aggressive with their citations, it's just, uh, you know, it's just good academic praxis. Because well, then... myself, I've been critical of science lately because it doesn't replicate. What does this show me? You've got eight things that all replicate. These all, all eight of these things support the same statement. So they went into research and they figured out that at different stages in development, there's different phytocannabinoids. And I'm not going to go and spend a whole bunch more time to try and disprove these eight articles. I'm pretty sure they all tried to disprove each other and then found out that the other people were correct. They found similar findings and that's called replication. That's how science should work in other labs and other settings. They should find similar things if it's actually a scientifically observable event. So I'm happy to see things like, you know, eight researchers and it's not just one research. It's like, if you look at these, they're teams of researchers that spend years on these articles and, uh, tons and tons of money and time and uh, lab analysis goes into this at some of the highest levels of science that we have available to us. So 
Um, I do like that you're putting. Um, I love that this that this paper is uh, set so that you can mouse over the links and then just see the authors and the 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 cited title. Um, but in the t can you click on table two? Uh, so under here, well, but like you see how there's okay that works out yeah yeah. So here we can actually see some of those uh, reports. A non-exhaustive summary about the most relevant studies in relation to the effects of ontogeny on phytocannabinoid production. So, um, you know, and and so on the left here, for those who are watching visually, uh, there's the objective, which is the objective of the paper, and then we have the results of the paper. So, like for example, the first one, the objective is to evaluate the evolution of major phytocannabinoids during cannabis growth, and the results were that maximum concentration of THCA and CBDA flowers were attained at the end of flowering during senescence, but varied according to chemotype. Now, you know, that definitely tracks, but, you know, like that is, uh, you know, so it's important to know what they were looking for too, because then sometimes it might make sense to you, like the viewer or the reader, like, oh, why didn't they like include this? And why didn't they include this? And I wanted them to take a look at this too, but that could have very well been outside the scope of their resources or their objective. So uh, you got to have a, some something that you're looking at or trying to figure out when you're doing these. Sometimes you can have a big paper, but you don't always have to have such a massive, um, you know, scope. And scope creep can be uh, really expensive <laughs> for research. So uh, I thought it was funny. What... They sort of flex in saying non-exhaustive summary. <laughs> because be way like, more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we got a whole lot more. This is just a little bit. And like, this is a lot. I mean, we're looking at one, two, three, four, five, six claims with the objective and the result, which is cool to see wrapped up so uh, neatly here. We've got investigating the impact of harvest time on phytocannabinoid yield, and we're seeing dry weight of the plant is increased at the fifth week, and there's a maximum at the 11th week. So in a, that must have been in a certain cultivar. I'd imagine it's definitely going to change cultivar to cultivar, but it's worth looking into. This is a uh, number 72 and I just hover over it in there. If you want to press pause on the YouTube when you're watching this afterwards, you'll be able to go through and check out the reference to that article. So um, yeah, I love this type of uh, being able to look through some of the research kind of quickly and get an idea of where we're at, like where we are in 2022, um, because the research changes every single year. We get more and more information and um, it's kind of interesting to see where the scientists and researchers are at uh, because a lot of us have similar ideas or maybe we have different ideas and uh, trying to figure out how to get them to line up and uh, yeah, see who's your, ultimately right in the long run. Use your filters when you search. Uh, like Google Scholar, for example, has a filter for like within the last 10 years, within the last five years, that really helps you on your search. Absolutely. I really want to emphasize up. that. I just did 2022. There's an option you can literally do like this year or 20, like last two years or last three years or whatever. And um, I think a lot of people like I've been guilty of this myself. I'm like, oh, Tal, that, that paper's from the 1970s, dude. Like, come on, give me something modern because I have reason to believe that since then, maybe our methods have changed. Maybe our technology's gotten better. And uh, there's so many different things that and maybe there is some landmark studies from the seventies that are still very, very solid to this day. And they're still quoted and referenced, but I think sometimes nice they don't have... even, sorry, not to interrupt. Sometimes they don't look, sometimes they go, don't go back and, and look uh, or like redo it because it's like, um, sometimes it's, be because it's, it's, yeah. Sometimes it's because it's like very, very demonstrably proven in that paper, even though it's old and there's nothing about the, 
like fundamentals that they're looking at. Sometimes that's not true, right? But like sometimes that's, I've noticed that too. Sometimes I'll be reading a report and it's like the really the most recent like example of this you have is like the seventies. All right, cool, no problem. Also, Spartan, what are you what are you having? What are you what are you taking a what are you using to to slake your thirst just now? That was uh, I peach peach iced tea. That's pretty nice. good. Very nice. Very important to know how you're hydrating. Uh, the, the fans oh. want to know. <laughs> they might not be able I, to actually, see. Actually, I do get asked often, honestly. I always think it's a beer because it's always in like a big frosty mug, but then I'm like, so I don't think Spartan's a big drinker. And then I'm like, oh, it's tea. It's something probably healthy. Yeah, it looked like it could be a dark brew. I was like, all right. <laughs> that's a pretty big, um, that's a honking uh, Steiner you got there. Man, so, it's, um, uh, it's glass, man. And I got it at the dollar store. So I got it for a dollar. I was like, hell that's yeah. That's not bad. I love the dollar store for stuff like that. Or uh, like whatever the uh you know goodwills or type things like that but we've got so what uh, else do we got here in the ontogeny section uh, evaluating um, the concentration oh besides the oh i meant like after or like okay, aside from the table, the table let's see if i can click out there we go good it didn't make me go all the way up to the top um they have a whole lot actually just like earlier i mean we've got probably at least two dozen Ooh, look articles. at this look at this stack at all on the, the third, the top of the third paragraph here, um, the citation 110 says here, um, Stack and others observed the rapid accumulation of phytocannabinoids in different varieties about three and a half weeks after the onset of flowering. Hamami and others in 2021, both of these were in 2021, uh, evaluated the phytocannabinoid production of 12 varieties intended for fiber or grain production. So that's important context at different stages of the reproductive phase and observed that the synthesis of these compounds varied among the genotype and during cannabis ontogenic development. So it's, I guess it's early development is the way that I'm interpreting that sentence. I'll say um, intended for fiber and grain production. We can just go ahead and say, that's pretty much describing hemp, right? This yeah, is not I'm pretty the high, sure. High probably like, yeah, probably like phenol. Yeah, right. So that's like the important caveat is that that's what it was for but like you know there are some fundamental similarities that might be there or that you might expect from other plants with uh that have some of that heritage mixed in um, well, i think we i've yeah. been uh guilty i guess of of trashing on hemp but like i'm usually referring to the old school hemp like the classic hemp that is uh very low cbd and very low thc it's actually meant for fiber and seed, where now we have hemp being 0.3% THC or lower. And there's a categorization of hemp, which is really like medical cannabis that is just very it's, high in CBD. It's not marijuana, quote unquote. It's, it's totally don't, not it's, marijuana. Don't put me in federal prison. Marijuana. Don't smoke me, bro. Uh, even though I'm yeah. legal in all 50 states. But um, yeah, no, I think that category of hemp has a lot of medical therapeutic and uh, especially co commonality between cannabis and it's much much more similar to uh, cannabis than like the fiber or seed hemp of old and even modern fiber and seed hemp i think have a little bit higher cbd levels than the older stuff so it's a much much different thing than it once was and uh, even though hemp is looked at as a different plant it is still cannabis so uh, these studies often do have a lot of overlap that is relevant so i'm i'm glad that they include them. 
So yeah, let's let's scan down. First three weeks is interesting because I would have felt like the cannabinoids would have been packed on a little bit later, but I'm sure that they're seeing just like a rise from pretty much nothing to now it's existing and on a pretty steady incline. I was confused with this next paragraph right here that starts with indeed the concentration of the photocannabinoids varies. What do they mean by photoperiod sensitive? And, and oh yeah neutral what's the difference between a photoperiod neutral photoperiod sensitive what, what are we talking so about sensitive auto flower. Would be, yeah neutral is auto flower and sensitive is like it's photoperiod it's good a period right yeah it needs the darkness to turn flower where neutral yeah. would mean it doesn't matter what the light cycle is like it, it doesn't care what the light cycle is like it's going to flower when it's mature enough you see what it says in this it says that those then that is saying that okay so auto flowers the CBG concentration starts out high in its flowering life cycle, but then in the 12th week, it comes back up to the maximum level. What? That's So they, I think what they mean is that they, I mean, I had to take a look at the paper, but perhaps what they did is they took, they took samples at different stages of life and they saw that like the levels of certain cannabinoids like fluctuate, right? So it was like higher at this level, and then so they just down. meant 12th week of life, not 12th week of flowering period. Because I'm like, what auto flower I, I don't, 12 weeks? Yeah, let me just I'm just speculating based on what you said, but I haven't actually in detail read it. 12 weeks of life, I would imagine you're right. Yeah, because like yeah. two weeks or three weeks vegging, and then nine weeks of flowering. Oh, yeah, yeah. These are academics, they're probably not meaning 12th week of flower as a as a presumption. Maybe well, they're just going to count weeks because if it's, if it's right. neutral, then they're just going to count weeks of life yeah. and they consider it kind of yeah. like it's, it's, just, it's always that, flowering in their mind, even though there is a small vegetative phase. Why it confused me it was just in that sentence right there. I mean, in that it says that it starts out as in the photoperiod neutral genotypes, the maximum concentration of CBG, CBG was in the second and third weeks of flowering. And after, oh, okay. this, and after this production peak, a significant drop in CBG production was observed, but in the twelfth week of flowering, I guess, yes. <laughs> so that doesn't make sense to me. Is oh, that... I see what you're saying now. Yeah. So this is um, from a study of, again, we're, we're talking about it says development of industrial hemp. So the CBG amount, because I think it can only be going CBG going to CBD, and maybe it's not going to CBN. It's converting back to CBG for some reason. Or it's producing more. Maybe it's like uh, revegging would be my philosophy, eventually, or, or theory on that. I th I think I think that uh, you know they're just they're just taking it all the way. They're just like seeing what happens. I don't think that they're doing it to like they're not uh, not as like a farmer would, but as just a person who's like, we'll just keep it living and see how it goes. Unless I mean, I guess that still doesn't make sense because that's still kind of a long time. I will say it's interesting that, you know, just like you'd find in most modern hybrids, they're talking about the maximum total phytocannabinoid concentration in photoperiod neutral varieties was uh, eighth and ninth weeks of flowering. So it's almost like just like a photoperiod, but they're saying photoperiod neutral. So autoflowers are most potent at eight to nine weeks into their flowering cycle. Just like oh, I'm not I'm not convinced that photoperiod neutral means autoflower because it doesn't make sense in that context to me at all. I was so confused by that paragraph. Could you have like a long, yeah, that is sort of odd. I have to admit, I guess we'd have to take a look closer. But... I could click on the article. Maybe let's see Google spell. Wait. Oh no. Yeah. No, click on the go up, go up a bit. It's 120, right? Yeah. Young. Yep. Here. 
Let's just take a look. Let's just take a look. Development of cannabinoids in flowers of industrial hemp, cannabis sativa L, a pilot study. Three day length sensitive, two day length sensitive neutral varieties. Day length neutral varieties. That sounds like autoflower to me, but what? How do what autoflower goes oh, twelve weeks and go go up actually uh, to the back to the abstract? It says here. Um, I noticed this key word here. They're saying uh, results indicate that total THC, CBD, and CBG significantly increases flowers matured, reaching the greatest concentration during six to seven weeks post anthesis. So post flowering. After a plateau stage of varied length for different varieties, the peak concentrations decline to splints and nest. And you so, see that here yeah. with the, the diagram. So you look, it, yeah. it goes up, it hits a maturity point, and they're saying six to eight weeks, and then it starts to drop down after that eight-week period uh, in more, more total. And it's similar mm -hmm. to like a lot of people feel like if you don't harvest your plant when the trichomes are milky, if it starts to get amber, you're going to start to see decay from THC to CBN. I really think a lot of it is the terpenes changing and things like that. Um, because photo periods have to run really, really, really long to see any CBN. Like I've looked at thousands of tests and I've never seen flower with more than 2% CBN. And that was the highest. It's usually like less than 1%. Um, but with this, we're seeing pretty drastic drop off after week six. And so these autos seem to be finishing fast. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we have the full text here or not. If they were CBD autos, that makes sense because you want to harvest early, I would imagine. They are CBD I think autos. it's just, I think they're they just, are. yeah, because they're hemp, they're hempy and they're like, yeah, I think that this is sort of a. Um... Well, and what I know about CBD one-to-ones with THC is the later you wait, the more THC comes around. So CBD is earlier in like a 30 to one, um, Harlequin, the guy who found Harlequin, House of Harlequin. Uh, Wayne Laughter, I think is his name. He said it's a 30 to one if you harvested it like week five or six. But if you wait until uh, weeks, you know, seven or eight, it becomes like a 16 to one. And if you push it to weeks nine and 10, it becomes like a four to one. Um, so predominantly CBD in all of those ratios. But the fact is the later he waited, the higher the amount of THC went up. And in this case, it looks like, uh, well, they are even... Uh, showing THC in this as well, but um, that seems to drop off. So it really depends a lot from cultivar to cultivar. This one is an interesting one because again, they're looking at flowers and industrial hemp. So I'm not sure why um, we're looking at really low levels. Wow. Yeah. THC percentage, we're talking 0 0.4. So you went from 0 0.6 to 0 0.4. So that's not like a huge drop off, right? And uh, CBD is more of a drastic drop. You're going from like 12% at the peak and then the valley is like an 8%. So 4% drop off is pretty significant there. Or it seems more significant. I'm sure the statistically it's significant because if you look at the uh, graph, the THC is dropping a similar amount. It's just in such a low quantity. It's almost not worth acknowledging because who is going to sense the difference between 0 0.4 THC and 0 0.6 THC? It's almost non, you're, no one's, an HPLC is the only thing that's going to detect that is all I'll say before we uh, jump back to the thing and then maybe go to the conclusions because I accidentally bumped us down to the uh, what's it called uh, citations. So plant density we already did, ontogeny we're kind of wrapping up, 
and I think temperature, altitude, CO2 concentration. So there's a lot of stuff around here, um, kind of lines up with what I've seen in a lot of other research, 25 to 30 Celsius, which is like the high 70s uh, range in Fahrenheit. So, but this was uh, done in Northern India. So there are a whole lot of different studies that are evaluating temperature as well as altitude and the impacts that it has on cannabis. So if you are curious, I'm gonna just kind of scroll through here. And if anybody on the panel has uh, thoughts or comments, they wanna stop and check on and see. Well, let me take a closer look at the first paragraph in this um, chapter. Okay, yeah, never mind. Curiosity sated. It's okay, yeah, it's uh, in interesting. I saw the increased density um, in trichomes or and augmented trichomes, which, that's an interesting comment there. I'm going to hover over. So if anybody wants to check out the uh, resources there, we've got those. But yeah, this is an interesting one. I know it's different because typically we focus on a single study and this can kind of be a little bit all over the place. But uh, I think it's just one of our many times that we're touching on scientific research like this and being able to uh, cover so many of the different things because a lot of this is being studied currently. This one is a 1975 paper, like I was mentioning earlier. Sharma, GK, altitude variation, and leaf. This might have even been the one that was talking about, like UV and uh, the different levels at different altitudes. But yeah, very interesting to see them that going all the way back. That third paragraph was pretty interesting, too, about the humidity and temperature, how the higher temperature but with lower humidity brought the higher uh, THC percentage and what's kind of what people are doing now is the higher temperature, higher humidity. So I was, that was kind of contrary to what a lot of people are doing. It was the old school way of thinking. I think with the HPS, um, a lot of people really liked uh, to have low RH for one reason or another. I think a lot of people were just trying to avoid powdery mildew and, and botrytis and different molds. And with the limiting air exchange as much as you can to I think uh, low RH was a safe bet for a lot of people for a long time. And maybe that's the type of stress, just like a drought stress that maybe the uh, drier RH is in certain points of flower. I don't know if like the entire flower, but I've also seen, I think it can do, cannabis is amazing. Like we covered some of the land race stuff the other week and I was showing some of the Afghan stuff that was like in the desert and still doing fine. But then they have stuff in the mountains that's thriving. So it can adapt and do well in tons of different environments. And I think it just produces different phytocannabinoids or different amounts or yields different or looks different. Like you'll see tighter buds or looser buds or, uh, you know, frostier or less frosty, things like that. But ultimately I think uh, cannabis can kind of uh, survive nearly anywhere, not necessarily everywhere, but Pretty if much, you man. make the accommodations for it, yeah, it's definitely one of those things that it naturally and with human assistance has gone basically all over the world, which is, amazing to see how it's changed and continued to uh, evolve and reproduce. I feel like this would have been an interesting one for uh, the American one. He always loves talking about Hawaiian and the, uh, there's some good tropical climate oh, yeah. stuff going on around here. Um, but again, 1975 studies. Um, so they are going back. Chandra et al. This is a more modern one, I think. 2011. So within the last decade, almost. This is the one that I often reference talking about essentially the uh, maximum uh, CO2 levels where like after you get to a certain point, um, you're hitting diminished returns. So you're going to be pumping light and CO2 so hard that there's only a certain level that it actually makes sense to do that up to. So um, 
trying to see if there's anything else maybe of interesting note before we get into next section, I guess is nutritional substrate. We talk about this quite a bit, but there's, it's always good to see the science and maybe uh, touch base there. So I think we'll keep on moving on from the altitude and CO2 stuff, even though we could probably spend more time on there. We're almost an hour in and uh, Matthew said that he also has a paper that we'll get into maybe in the second hour. So we'll glance through the nutrition and substrate section and see if anybody on the uh, panel has any thoughts or comments on anything that they see. Maybe we could stop and talk or we can keep on rolling through. Well, one thing I wanted to bring up here is um, something we've already talked about before, but I like to stress it. And that's what one, two, three, fourth paragraph down. The excessive fertilization actually brings THC down in flowers. So everybody that likes to push, push, push their plants to the, you know, really high PPMs, man, you're bringing your THC down. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe it's not. Great point. Oh, it definitely is. I mean, yeah, like, uh, too much know, love it's, it's too, yeah it's one of those intuitive traps right like you mean i can't just supercharge it no it's like it's like uh i mean it's very simple it's like when you're unless you're like pumping a lot of iron maybe you need a little bit more protein right but or carbohydrates and things like that potentially but at the same time you know you can't just like eat you know 10 steaks every day and expect that like that's you're going to Turned the hydro store will tell you that though they'll tell you oh man pour this nutrient supplement company will be like yes please buy all of our protein creatine and just keep on dumping more do more oh the reason it's not yielding well is you don't bottle you need to buy another bottle to fix the issues from that last bottle it almost reminds me of another industry that i won't get into but yeah it's a a shame sometimes and i understand why a lot of these hydro stores shut down and uh, poor business practices like that i think are one of the main reasons but yeah, yeah. You can't don't fix a... your don't fix your cannabis a peanut butter and trend sandwich. It's not. It's just not a good idea. I guess <laughs> it's also just waste of resources, right? Which is a critical problem in all agriculture. Well, and like earlier, we were talking about um, seeing lots of so- sources cited. This one has five. So the others have reported that the increased availability of MPK decreased THC and other phytocannabinoids. One, two, three, four studies all found that 2021 2021 2019 and when was this that can't be right 2017 2017 okay okay i was like that was the page number and then two more studies that found the same thing in the leaves (laughs) yeah so i mean six things that show cannabis is uh essentially if you give it too much nutrient you're gonna be suffering uh, the consequences of lower phytocannabinoid yield which is ultimately we're trying to grow phytocannabinoids that the reason it's called a cannabinoid is because it's from cannabis and most other plants for a long time they thought no other plants were able to produce cannabinoids so the thing that makes this plant really special i know everyone loves to talk about the terpenes and i love terpenes too i have episode three of green stock talks it's called terp talk or something like that and uh, i love terpenes as well but they're found in all plants throughout nature the thing that makes cannabis different really is the cannabinoids minor minor cannabinoids and things like that but the beautiful ratios that it comes in makes it amazing also so i'm not a terp hater by any means but esters flavonoids and those things matter too Um, one of the interesting ones I saw was a study, and it might even be referenced kind of right here, is talking about the different types of nitrogen and how that could inc- uh, increase or decrease phytocannabinoids. So if you're using too much of certain types of nitrogen, I guess maybe Brandon would be an interesting person to talk to about that, because I know you've tried lots of different types of nitrogen and have some thoughts on different nitrogen input sources. 
we've uh, I think I've I think I've posted at least one of these papers that are being referenced here because I think I remember going over this recently myself. Perhaps the uh, the Deprado one because uh, it's a little bit more recent. But um, I was going to say also, oh yeah, and like it's um, for those who don't already know. I think a lot of people in chat do already know, especially the people who come here every week. I see you. I recognize you. Um, you know, but uh, like mycorrhizae and other other microbes won't necessarily not all of them, but a lot of them that we famously think of. Um, those uh, those mutualistic relationships, uh, they're also they also have a cost associated with them. And so, if the plant's getting all kinds of these nutrients up front, no problem. There's no reason to invest in that relationship necessarily, or at least a, a reduced reason, perhaps. And so. Um, in some cases, you don't even get, um, you know, that interaction uh, if you're if you're stimulating with a bunch of, of nutrients in the substrate. So so that's a thing to consider as well. I'm not saying that's the reason in these cases, um, but it could definitely be a contributing factor if you're trying to use these uh, mycorrhizal fungi and other sorts of microbes at the root level. I wanted to bring up a comment in chat before we get too far away from this actual screen but the the rest of this also states not only the phytocannabinoids but it also brings down the yield and uh wb grower was asking is it lower thc because the buds get bigger so they have less thc by volume well the buds don't get bigger um if you're over fertilizing you know you're going to get uh stress on the plant enough to where it's going to actually decrease yield as well and it's saying that smaller weaker buds it's it's all bad <laughs> like really there's no reason to over fertilize your plant and i know that the jungle boys might say hey we run for ec but if you don't have the type of cultivation equipment that they have to ensure that things are and i to be honest i smoke the jungle boys bud boys it's not good <laughs> and uh, i know a lot of people out there think it's good maybe they haven't tried some really good shit yet but the jungle boys product that i've tried and i've tried a few different ones um, it's, it's not even priced at like the good, it, maybe they're trying to go for a more value product and, and props to them for that. It's definitely not the most expensive product on the market, but, um, these guys that are touting, oh yeah, we run these super high ECs and we use X or Y or Z nutrient at this level. Many of them are sponsored by nutrient companies. So one, they're trying to sell you more nutrients, whether it's, you know, you know, implicit or explicit. Uh, that is the case with a lot of them. They the reason that they're toting around those things, showing off the Athena or whatever nutrient, it's because they're getting paid for it. And yeah, they're using it, they're growing, it works for them. But so does you know Jack's three two one that you can get at the ag store for uh, maybe tenth the cost. Uh, shout out to Brian four twenty PM who has a great breakdown of nutrient cost and ratios on his Instagram. Uh, cool dude, just had a great harvest. Hey, I know he's a longtime listener. He might be in the chat right now. So shout out to you, Brian. Uh, cool dude. Maybe someday you'll reconsider coming on the show. I know you talked about maybe wanting to come on and then change your mind, but we'll see in the future. But that being said, um, uh, I can comment a little bit on nitrogen and uh, yield, both yield and on uh, cannabinoid production. And so for me, obviously, you guys already know if, if people who follow me, uh, amino acids are going to be the number one kind of go to. And you can get that through a different combination of things, either through the introduction of things like protein hydrolysates or uh, just from the natural breakdown and decomposition of 
organic matter and also through some of the metabolites that are produced by the biology and soil. So those hands down are the best because they have a, a way of conserving energy. Um, however, this is the real thing with nitrogen, regardless of if it's, you know, um, amino acids or nitrate or ammonium, you want to be careful about how much nitrogen you start with and how much remains in that system and in the plant itself as that plant progresses through its later stages, because too much nitrogen will both decrease your yield. It will decrease the cannabinoid content and it'll really, really wreck the flavor. A lot of the harsh flavors that's associated with, uh, you know, things that people don't think are rinsed well, it's because there's too much uh, nitrogen in that material still. That's that's kind of my my takeaway with uh, nitrogen. So you want to see nitrogen, real, you know, higher in veg, and you want to see it kind of plateaued downwards. Like it plateaus, it goes up, and then it just slowly decreases throughout the flowering cycle. And you should see, see you know, natural senescence. Uh, I know about what 30, 35 to forty ppm at the end of flowering is okay, but you don't want to be any higher than that. Yeah. That's like a, I mean, I don't know, maybe misconception is too harsh of a phrasing, but like, uh, I think Dr. Coco has said it too on this, on this show as well. Uh, but like, you know, having an extra special, super duper different flowering, you know, nutrient line, like that's sort of not necessary. Uh, right. Like, I mean, I've Absolutely certainly, not necessary. I've certainly worked with people who that have not paid attention to this um, contrivance and have grown really well, great well, stuff. Me to myself included. So, I mean, you, you have to keep in mind that plants there's, you know, there's three ways they can uptake nutrients and then there's only a certain uh, form that they can take them up in. And if we're talking about things like calcium or magnesium, right. It's it, their divalent form. Uh, and then if we're talking about like iron, we're talking about its ferric form. And so we're, when we're talking about these individual molecules, we're talking about- Is there about, a non-ferric form of iron? Uh, well, it's oxidized. Fe3, like, okay. uh, you know, if it oxidizes, and that's what happens, it oxidizes in the system. So it needs to be able to stay in that, that, in that, uh, that form. That ferrous form. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So it, so in the same thing, you know, when we're talking about phosphate, you know, we're not talking about the amount of phosphorus because phosphorus isn't available to plant. It's a, it's a actually the phosphate anion that the plant can take up. And so it's there, it's very selective what the plant is actually able to absorb. And so that's one of the things it doesn't matter And the plant does oftentimes can't differentiate between where that source is coming from. I see. Yeah. And I mean, you've reminded me that like, you know, one of the big benefits of a lot of mycorrhizal relationships is this like phosphorus mining that they do. And I want to say it's, um, I, I, I want to say it's, it's a phosphorus a cation that is often said in literature, but I could be totally off base there. Um, um, but, uh, but that could be a difference, right? Cause it's going through the, the fungus first. Right. So there's a, um, there's all this transportation, Cost, right there's all this energetic yep. metabolism that's being front loaded by the microbiome in that way um, which makes it 
perhaps worth the investment in a lot of cases, right? So that's kind of a great way to sort of um, put those two things that we're talking about together. I appreciate that point. There's two more uh, sources that are saying excessive fertilization during the growing season can result in decrease in THC concentration and flower yield, number 115 and 140. So that is like up to like eight now. I think that's a, a little bit too much fertilizer is going to hurt your THC content, which a lot of people are still growing for um, as much as people are emphasizing the importance of terpenes and the entourage or uh, other effects in cannabis. THC is definitely one of the uh, I mean, th prize Think about the people who are strictly growing for things like rosin and stuff. These people don't really want biomass. They, they would, they, what they're looking for is pr resin production, cannabinoid production, terpene production, because that's essentially what their end product is. And they're getting rid of the biomass to begin with. So, um, but anyway, Hey, I have to actually, it's dinner time here. So I got to sign off. It was great uh, talking to everybody and I'll see you guys all next week. Thanks for joining Brandon and uh, have a great week. Have a good one, Brandon. I just ordered some of his amino N plus at BokashiEarthworks.com. And uh, I know he's looking for affiliates. I know Spartan Grown is going to be one. And shout out to Marcus Greenthumb. He's one as well. So if you're looking for, I think, a discount code, you can get hooked up from either of those guys for BokashiEarthworks.com. I, like I mentioned in past shows, try to pay full price to support my homies' businesses. But if you do want to save that buck, it is the cheap home grow. I don't blame you. Uh, keep that money in your pocket and reinvest it somewhere else you know, save that money and uh, check out Spartan Grown or Marcus Green Thumb to get that affiliate link code to maybe save yourself a few bucks on some great products there. And thank you, Brandon, for your time. I know he's gone now, but uh, he's uh, always good to have around when we're talking about some of the science stuff and appreciate his input. Yeah, I love that he's got products. So he, he, he looks at the science behind it and then he's got products that supports that's supported by the science. That's what I really like about his page. So when I saw he had an affiliate program, I wanted to jump on board that because those are products I use in my garden. So, yeah, big shout out to Brandon, man. Really appreciate that. And there's just some more stuff about some of the different types of nitrogen and uh, how it can have different meta uh, metabolic responses and things like that. But I think we've done a good chunk of talking about the different and things like that. There's so much, as you all can see, as I'm scrolling, there are literally hundreds of studies. So we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. So in the sake of brevity, we're going to talk a little bit about water availability before we move on to the final thoughts and conclusions or just mention that uh, this is pretty much exclusively talking about uh, messing around with drought and uh, examining different turgor pressure and things within the plant so a lot of stuff that we've actually talked about in the past so i don't want to spend too much time on it but the final part before we pass it over to matthew's paper is the conclusions and future directions which i think is worth potentially uh, reading over there's just three paragraphs and then uh, we could give our own input on some of the stuff that we read and thought about and then uh, move on from there. But it says international narcotic conventions and associations legalization have constrained the establishment, characterization and use of cannabis genetic resource collections, which very true. Uh, this has resulted in the underutilization of the gene pool, variability and cultivar development. Moreover, a limited amount of research on the influence of environmental conditions on phytocannabinoid yield is evident. Prohibitionist legalization has discouraged scientists from studying cannabis production, the main factor responsible for the current lack of research in several countries. Legalization is changing due to recognition of medicinal and agricultural value of cannabis plants. I've cotton off, but uh, we have two more paragraphs. If maybe Spartan, you want to take the next one and then I'll tap in yeah, for sure. the uh, final. In recent years, the number of works on the topics covered in the review has increased significantly. However, they are not enough to determine the influence of management techniques in abiotic factors or phytocannabinoid 
production. Thus, it is necessary to develop basic research to evaluate how nutritional availability, water availability, harvest time, CO2 concentration, light intensity and quality, different types of stress, pruning, and other management methodologies could ultimately influence the phytocannabinoid yields for different genotypes. Epigenetic and biotechnology tools, such as omics-based methods, can explain how these compounds are synthesized according to the physiological responses under crop management techniques and different environmental conditions. And I'll actually pass it, Matthew. Would you be okay with reading the last one or should I take it? Take it. Additionally, the fibers produced by plants grown for the production of phytocannabinoids can be used as raw material for several industries. However, there is little research on the production of fibers and phytocannabinoids. There is a need to explore the concomitant productive potential of these raw materials to ease circular bioeconomy practices. Detailed knowledge of the biological and physiological processes of cannabis sativa plants is important in order to support the development of efficient cultivation methods, aiming to provide higher yields and consistent quality. Thank you guys for reading that. As we do have a few blind uh, growers out there who are listeners of the show and people that listen to the podcast, it's nice for us to at least be able to read off those last few paragraphs to kind of give a summary of how they feel about what they've gone over in this paper, which is literally hundreds um, of different papers that are all maybe not hundreds. Let's see. Yeah, it's hundreds. 157. Different. 157. <laughs> that, that's a lot of Damn. research that they went through a lot of time that they put into this paper for us to be able to, you know, in an hour and 15 minutes, uh, quickly glance through it. Obviously, we're not going to be able to touch on all of the de detail of all this, but I will be linking this in the show notes, both on the podcast and on the YouTube. So if you want to go through and look at it in more detail, you're more than welcome to. And uh, I just want to say thank you to everybody for hanging in there with us. We got 104 live with us in the chat. These science talks can be a little bit uh, dry at times because we're looking at a share screen with lots of text, but I like to uh, try and bounce it off the group and talk a little bit with the chat overall. And uh, I tend to have good times on these shows and we get a lot of positive feedback. When I did a poll on the Spotify, only 10 people answered, but four of the 10 said that they wanted more science uh, research article paper reviews. Then I did like an A, B, C, and D. It was like more science was A, uh, B was like um, chat Q&A and chat guests. Uh, C, I think was like general uh, grow topics. And then D was a mix of all three. And it was like 40%, 20%, 20%, 20%. So I think everybody wants a little bit of everything because those are like the three main types of shows that we do. And uh, I, I like doing the mix of the three. So it's fun to kind of bounce back and forth and not have to do one type every single time and be fixed into one thing. But yeah, does anybody have uh, any general thoughts or conclusions as we read the scientists kind of really wordy uh, conclusions on what we went over? But I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on what I'd consider at least one of the meta-analysis that did a pretty decent job summing up the general state of affairs in uh, science around cannabis that we know today in regards to abiotic factors, that is. Well, I would say, um, I mean, I'm glad that, uh, I'm very glad to see the, the, the interest in that, of course, like kind of obvious, a lot of crops have to deal with these, these factors. It's very important to do that kind of research. And also we're in an interesting time 
I guess we're in an interesting time in plant and sort of agricultural research in general because, um, we, you know, we have the ability to sort of synthesize so much, so many different kinds of factors together at the same time um, that we are kind of moving into that, that, that I, I, it's an, it's an, it's an interesting uh, sort of criticism that I sometimes hear about research, which is, I don't think very accurate a lot of times. Sometimes it is true, but not all the time, which is that like, oh, scientists, they're always trying to like control for variables and only look at one thing when the world is so diverse. So the research is totally invalid. And it's not true because um, a lot of times, yeah, sure, some research is just looking at one particular variable. But like, like you said, Jack, a lot of this research is then replicated or they add other variables. And but, you know, you, you kind of have to know a little bit about what you're talking about first and kind of isolate in that way. And then you kind of bring it together. But the idea that like researchers just don't, um, you know, have like a holistic perspective is uh, really uninformed. <laughs> and as you can see, um, you know, we're, we're able to take a look at a lot of those factors, even with something like cannabis. So I'm excited to see where that goes. You and me both. I, I really hope to see more stuff get studied. But uh, Spartan, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm just kind of the same mind of Matthew. I'm just encouraged, honestly, to see some stuff like this. I'm always honestly, every time I see meta analysis, I, I'm already half disinterested because they're not really I mean, they're looking at other people's work that who knows, you know, <laughs> they don't have I don't feel they have the time to really dig into each study and, and see how the methods were and to see how valid they were and at the time and all that stuff. So a meta-analysis, I take it as a kind of like an average, you know, an average kind of thing. And they are cool to dig into. And this particular one was nice because of how wide scope it was. Um, can't, and it's just a drop in the bucket of how many it illustrates, like it's a drop in the bucket, how many different factors can affect the cannabis plant and why the most common answer you're going to get when asked a question about growing cannabis is going to be, it depends <laughs> because there's so many factors. So I love that the science is being done is, you know, I look at something like that and I feel almost like throwing my hands up and like, what's the point, you know, because there's so many factors, but at the same time, science is what makes science so, so great is that it tackles things like that to the minutia. So one group might just take one cannabinoid and research that to the nth, you know what I mean? And that's what makes the human so great is we can communicate that with each other and we can divide up our time and, and figure this shit out, even though it seems like it's impossible. So we just had to give the guys time. And I think the conclusions brought up a really great point about regulations. The regulations have been standing away for so long of the science of it. And as these regulations fall, which they have been, uh, it's an exciting time to, to see the science and to, and to uh, really see where this thing goes because wow, look, look how far we've come without the science i'm excited to see where we go with the science and so often our criticisms of the science are like oh maybe they didn't do enough plants or maybe the plants weren't looking good enough and maybe it's because they haven't been cultivating for long enough because it hasn't been legal for long enough so they're just you're dealing with a lot of brand new growers that are also scientists they're professional scientists they're very very good at the science but the cultivation as we talked about in the uh, practice of growing episode is different than knowing what to do actually getting it done 
um, is challenging. It's a different set of skills. It's more of a, a farm laborer type work than a scientifically minded type of work. It can be. You can set up automatic watering like we saw with stairs at plants and uh, you can do things like that. But at the larger agronomic scale, um, it becomes like most other agricultural products. I mean, you can grow it in fields, uh, but you can also grow it in small greenhouses or in a tiny closet. So it's got tons of variability and um, it's exciting to me as well. And the thing that I liked about this meta-analysis was um, unlike some that will be like, uh, you know, ivermectin doesn't work because these hundred studies said this about that or whatever. This one was like, look at all these abiotic factors that exist. Here are all of the studies about them. So it wasn't trying to say like, this is the claim that we're making or like, this is the ex extrapolation we're getting. It's like, here is the pool of research that falls under this categorization. And if you want to go dig deeper into it and find out, like you're saying, Spartan, spend the time yourself and dig into, is this because like some of those things we looked at, I'm like, this sounds a little fishy. Like, I, I would like to look into that more. And I probably will after this. I'll go back and listen to them and be like, man, I was listening to that. That didn't sound right. And I'll look into the study and be like, something was fishy with that study. And, and maybe it didn't replicate. Or maybe uh, there was some weird genetic that they used that maybe caused some uh, outlier that we would never come across. Because none of us are running with that genetic or whatever it is. So um, there's a lot of factors, like you said. But I, I, I like that. Once people start to, like you said, become the specialists and they narrow it down and they know best temperatures, these are the best communities, these are the best elevation, CO2s, light types and genetics, all that different stuff, then we can kind of dial in for what you want because there's not like a, a best, right? It's a best for what? Uh, the best thing to produce THC is not the same thing as the best thing to produce CBD. So those are two big goals with cannabis, right? So if I was trying to produce the most THC and you're trying to produce the most CBD, we're definitely going to be taking different genetic paths, even if our cultivation is identical. Um, so knowing what you're going to do going in is a major factor. And then what you're trying to get out of it. And even the scientists are kind of at times not struggling with that, but having to address that, like, who is the target audience? Like, I think they're doing a lot of this research to work with industrial cultivators because yeah. they're the ones who are going to be, you know, paying and benefiting from this types of research. So it's a, I think it's going to be a consolidation in the market. Once uh, we get a mature market, there's probably going to be five, 10 popular cultivars that are grown massively all because they perform well or they're designed to perform well. But, uh, oh man, we got these chat pots. That's so annoying. I hope I hit the right one. I did. It's a sign that we're doing well. We're popular enough that some algorithm wants to send them over to us, but I appreciate that you and the other moderators are good at keeping their eye out to the knock those people out of the chat because no one really wants to see them or accidentally click on any of their links. You were saying something, Spartan. I don't know if you still have your thought. I, I kind of lost, I lost it. I thought I don't remember what I was talking about now. Sorry, I was cleaning up the chat. <laughs> it's okay. Um, Noah the Grower, do you have any thoughts before maybe Matthew? I think you said you had another paper that we wanted to pull up. Yeah, I do. No. I'm ready on standby. No, I've been just listening. Uh, so a lot of this stuff is uh, kind of new information. I mean, you know, it's earlier uh, that conversation about plant count and uh, you know bigger plants versus smaller plants. That's always kind of been like a like a pet peeve of mine. Just you know, like back in the day, you know, it's a little different now. But back in the day, it was like guys had you know thousand watt hoods, HDI light, you know, high density lights, and uh, they would always try and get like a pound of light, you know, and they'd always go in like a 20 gallon pot or, 
you know, whatever. And then we get, but I would always try and do like four or five gallon pots and I would always hit like 23 ounces. And they were like, how do you do it? I'm like, I just like the different, you know, different sizes. And it was always just something I did back in the day, you know? So. So like more plants per hood than doing like one massive plant. So you're splitting up the amount of yield on each plant is kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Well, just, you know what I mean? Like, you know, and that's what I would always say, you know, we'll get more grams per watt. That was kind of what it was, you know, with the, you know, thousand watt lights and stuff. So that was always just kind of trying to get as many grams per watt as you could. And, you know, also just at the same time trying to have quality, you know, too. So, yeah, definitely. Quality is uh, at the end of the day, if nobody wants to smoke it, then why grow it? But I think, uh, Matthew, if you're ready to go ahead and bring up that article, we could jump into that one next because we got about 20 minutes left before Spartan Growing heads on over to the Michigan Bros Grow Show. All righty. Do I have, uh, have access and everything? Do I have permission? I, I'm pretty good. <laughs> I've been setting it at the beginning of each show, and I just double-checked, oh. and it says multiple participants can share simultaneously. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Now, I... So I'll just um, while I'm while I'm well, oh, that's weird. All Can right. you preface the article maybe and uh, give us? Yeah. A so so basically, um, yeah, I have it right here. So you all can see it right now. Yeah, bio one complete. Yeah. So so. I've been working on a in-depth presentation for powdery mildew. So I thought I would just share a really cool paper about it that I've actually posted several times or referenced it several times in my social media uh, because I like it so dang much um, because it has really great diagrams. So it makes things that are kind of complicated, like you said, Jack, very dry. Um, even for somebody of me who likes to read about this kind of stuff, it can be a little bit, you know, of a siege. So uh, the diagrams are kind of nice. So this paper is called Biotrophy at its Best, Novel Findings and Unsolved Mysteries of the Arabidopsis Powdery Mildew Pathosystem. So um, it's not cannabis, but Arabidopsis or Thalecrest is a model organism that we use in research for figuring things out about other plants, because a lot of things that are true for it are also true for Again, many other plants, not everything. And there are going to be unique changes, of course. That's why you do specific research, obviously. But, um, you know, you might preliminarily look at things this way. Um, so, again, like I said, my favorite thing about this research is that it gives you a great overview of powdery mildew. But pressed for time, we're not going to get into a lot of those details. I do want to focus just on the, the pretty pictures. Um, so it goes over how powdery mildew is classified a little bit, uh, also um, a little bit about its biology and then kind of what it does. And so in the smallest way or the, you know, the most simplest way I could say is that um, powdery mildew is like, uh, it's a fungus that it's most of its entirety, like six out of 10 genes in its genome are um, devoted to basically taking over a plant cell, hopefully multiple times, ideally. Um, but you know, that little sporling, that little sprouted spore that gets on your plant, it doesn't have a lot of options. Uh, it has to basically try against the cell once, maybe twice, um, maybe. 
uh, and if it doesn't succeed, it's dead. It's toast. And so all the spores that are around right now are from an unbroken line from 100 million years ago or, or so um, of powdery mildew that we're able to get by and get 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 going. And um, you know they even predate, of course, at 100 million years they predate the, predate the um, asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. So you know they're doing something right. So like so here's this diagram. I really like this because it kind of shows what's going on here uh, in a powdery mildew infection. So basically, powdery mildew spore, which I, which I'll represent here. I think you know it makes this little this little uh, hypha, this little little structure, which we call an apressorium, uh, or well specifically it becomes the apressorium. And then as it penetrates through the plant, it makes this big bulb here. Um, called Hostorium. And the thing about it is that you gotta, you gotta know this too about powdery mildew, which, we'll, which I'll go over in presentation, but it actually um, has been found recently that it evolved from, or it belongs in a group of fungi that um, contains mycorrhizae, that contains um, other beneficial, quote unquote, or sort of like mutualistic fungi for plants. Um, and also a lot of um, saprophytes, a lot of fungi that break down dead plant matter. And it's thought that powdery mildew evolved from a line of fungi that broke plants down and then acquired traits over time that allowed it to actually go on to colonize living plants also. Um, so it seems to use a lot of the uh, traits that like good guys like mycorrhizae use to um, colonize the plant. Um, so powdery mildew is like the, the nega mycorrhiza, you know, it's the, it's the anti mycorrhiza. You know, it takes nutrients from the plant instead of giving it to the plant. Um, so this bulb here, it fuses with the membrane of the cell. So you got the cell wall it bores through, but then there's this other thin membrane and it, it fuses to it. Um, and when it does that, you see when it's penetrating through the cell, um, all of the various organelles and little, little cell structures inside the cell, they actually orient to the, the place where the powdery mildew's tendril, its penetration peg is going through. And um, they're there because they have genes that alert it when there's like this sort of physical pressure. Because when a mycorrhiza goes through into it, you know, um, it wants to be there to be able to facilitate that process. Unfortunately, um, that's not what happens. Um, so uh, what this hostorium is, is it's, uh, it's where all the nutrients are going to go, but it also dumps all of these things called effectors, which are like proteins, and you might even classify some things like toxins in this light, but really usually there's proteins that are going to like basically blind and and um, stupefy the plant's ability to um, uh, suppress it. It's going to do the suppressing before the plant can suppress it, essentially. And it will reprogram how the, the plant cell um, expresses its genes, which is you know, pretty significant. Now, um, if the plant is able to recognize this for what it is in the very beginning of the infection, which like a lot of resistant plants do, then that thing never gets to that point and it dies. That's really good resistance. But sometimes what happens is it, it produces these things called 
and I'll finally go to another diagram here. Now this this shows kind of how it's it's it's, it's penetrating here. We got the is a cool little um, I think it's a scanning electron microscope I want to say uh, or fluorescence or something at least. Um, but yeah, this is oppressorium. Here's a little hostorium. This is six hours past infection, twelve to fourteen hours past infection, twenty four to forty eight hours. You got this one infection and they're going on to another cell, you know, three to seven days. So you usually get only a few cells after a few days. So the very beginning parts of powdery mildew infection, you know, are kind of small and invisible. But when, when you get into this, um, this plant cell, they're producing all of these, um, these little things called uh, uh, multicellular vesicular bodies. And they're just loaded. They're just packed with all these these proteins that are just going to be shipped off and, and um, you know, suppress the immune system of the cell. It, they bind with things that are supposed to be toxic, break them apart. Um, they, uh, they basically tell the plant to stop producing some of these defenses altogether. Um, they might even tell the cell to produce signals that will interfere with the signaling that it would use just to tell other cells, hey, hello, uh, we have a powdery mildew problem. You should prime yourself, um, you know, for resistance. Is the resistance to the plant um, act like it's almost like with a virus where it tries to oxidize it or how does it try? Yes. To... Okay. Yeah. So that's called, that's called hypersensitive response. And there's actually a few different ways that it happens. Um, and so oh, you bring it right now. It says oxidative burst right there. I didn't see it. Yeah. You're right there. <laughs> yeah. You're, 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 you're there. Um, you're, you're, you're correct. This is, this is admittedly, this is how a lot of cells deal with their problems. Um, is by uh, <laughs> is by taking it with them, um, but uh, that being said, some biologists, some some people who are way more learned than I am, uh, will they call it certain kind certain ways that this is triggered, uh, sort of a different term. But you know, for our our um, audience, I'll just say that it's all hypersensitive response. But basically, yeah, um, what it will do, even with plants that can't totally resist the fungus, like in the other example. Um, they tend to have some generalized responses to things that get in <laughs> that shouldn't be there. And one of them is like, kind of like what white blood cells do, you know, uh, you might know from your biology classes that uh, white blood cells come in and they like envelop like a bacteria or some other thing that shouldn't be there and they eat it to death. They, they phagocytose and kill it. And so something very similar happens here where not white blood cells, but other proteins which we can see here in the on the green section. This is called resistance to powdery mildew eight and eight point two, I think, are these um, particular vesicles. Uh, but yeah, that's literally the name of the gene <laughs> that's promoting this effect is resistance to powdery mildew eight. Um, you know, so presumably there's one through seven, right? But uh, it goes, it it uh, detaches, it um, it reattaches onto the the this bulb, the hostorium. And over time, hopefully, uh, in a particularly robust resistant case, you do two things when you do this. One is you shut off the powdery mildew's ability to um, dump those proteins. And the second thing you do is you, you physically interfere with its ability to absorb water and nutrients from the plant cell. So it's, it's really kind of an all-in-one package. And so uh, hopefully you're able to encase it totally shut it off from the nutrients, and then you produce a massive amount of these re reactive oxygen species, which 
are often used as signals also, but it will also just basically destroy everything in the cell and deny it to the enemy. And then um, if it's the first you know, time a spore is germinating, then this is basically curtains for the spore. Um, if it's the case where the uh, spore has already got a few hostoria, then maybe this is just going to make it a very uphill battle for the powdery mildew, which could result in its death a number of ways. Maybe other cells get primed and then those new ones get destroyed and it just lived for a small period of time, but not very long. Or it might be able to live a longer period of time, but other factors, like we said with the environment, you know, maybe it's very hot, maybe it's very uh, intense UV radiation. You know, the fungus doesn't like that either. So if it's having a really devil of a time, even if it was in better conditions, maybe it could still contend with the plant, right? But the high resistance plus, you know, UV radiation plus other things going on you know, just might be too much for it and, it and it dies that way. So it's very important when we talk about resistance to both acknowledge that there are different kinds of resistances that do different things, even to the same target, but also, um, you know, it's a, it's, there's all kinds of things happening at once in real life. So if you're trying to judge something for its resistance, you know, you kind of have to control for those variables, like we were saying earlier. And this B section here, this is um, this is showing so red, the uh, the propidium iodide, that's the the colorant, um, is showing plant and fungal structure. Uh, did I miss something? Micrograph of the GFP, no, that's also a colorant. Are we doing inoculation trials anywhere yet, Matthew? Is it? Uh, the case where they're taking like a cultivar and saying, all right, we inoculated this with powdery mildew, we know it has it, and then we can see either type within that cultivar has resistance, or um, if they try 10 cultivars and one of them doesn't have it and the other nine do, you could imply that, well, it was inoculated with it, so if it doesn't have it, then it's got resistance. Yeah, there are groups that are doing it. I feel like a lot of people who breed, I've had a conversation recently with somebody who took great umbrage with the suggestion that, you know, they should uh, be controlling for environmental um, circumstances with their resistance trials or claiming that their plant is resistant. Um, but uh, like Cornell, I saw a paper there where they were doing inoculation tests for hot powdery mildew, for example, and, and, us, and other powdery mildews as well. Um, I know, I'm pretty sure that the University of Guelph did a study regarding that. Um, I'm, I know that there are also private researchers who are probably doing this as well. Um, and in, in, you know, other agricultural spheres, this is par for the course. You would absolutely be doing, um, you know, inoculation trials to at least tell, like, you know, you can't just say, like, you know, hey, this these plants over here had powdery mildew and these plants over here didn't get it and they're pretty close together. So if this one didn't get it, then it must be resistant. Like that could be true, but you don't know for sure. And a really easy way to do it that doesn't cost a lot of money is to actually try to get them infected. You know, actually rub the rub leaf that, on the leaf. Rub the leaf on the leaf. Yeah. And 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 document that. And if it if it doesn't colonize, then that's that's pretty impressive because there should be thousands of spores on like a, a really patchy cannabis leaf of sufficient size. So I mean, this picture right now, that's giving me yeah. skin crawl. That is a lot of powdery mildew. Yeah, exactly. Like if your leaf looks like this, you know, and you put it you're on the, yeah, you're on trouble, you're in trouble. But if you take the coal zero over here on the left and you 
if you were to take one of those leaves and put it on this MLO mutant, which I assume doesn't have the MLO genes, because they're talking about, we can get into that though, but um, basically if you do it and it still remains like this, that's what we might call in the business robust resistance. <laughs> um, and uh, so, but you know, pathogens can mutate and plants can mutate too. And the other coin, other side of the coin is that like uh, the powdery mildew gets a vote. It's constantly mutating. All these different spores that it makes are gonna have small little mutations that may or may not even defeat robust resistances. On the same token, uh, a plant that you might breed with as you're breeding it, if you're not checking to make sure it retained the resistance, right? You can't just assume, because obviously the plants that we had millennia ago might have been more resistant, which many times is the case. And what we're finding when we go and ingress uh, uh, land race, right? And, and other feral populations and things like that. Well, like, um, you know, that, uh, so, so obviously when we went and we, we bred for other traits, you know, we lost those resistance traits. So they don't stay either necessarily. We didn't know or even think to pick for it in many cases because exactly. people were trying to cultivate in environments that were suboptimal for the PM to be there. So the cultivars in a perfect, perfect environment, quote unquote, aren't going to have to worry about being resistant. So many people never selected for it. So that's just the sad reality of the weaker uh, genetics that might be prettier or more potent or taste better or get you more high, but they might not have the you know same resistance to powdery mildew. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, in my in the research I've done for this presentation, I learned that um, you know hot powdery mildew was a massive, massive problem in the Pacific Northwest and basically caused just like it did in New York in like around 1997, like eight like kilometer eight square kilometers of hop um, production just basically was gone, destroyed in a Damn. place where, in a place where 95% plus of hop production happens in the U S right. That's and scary. so that, that was, yeah, exactly. So like, I mean, you know, we should really consider that, uh, this can be a massive problem for cannabis as well. And, um, the MLO genes for people who were curious, that stands for mildew locus. Oh, I talk about it a lot, but I'm also asked about it a lot from newer people. And I don't know who's in the audience. So I want to say that basically, like I said before earlier, uh, powdery mildew learned a lot of its tricks from its brethren, um, its mycorrhizae brethren and other things like that. So it exploits the same response, this responses the plant has to allow the good guys in, it pretends to be them. And then when it gets its foot in the door, then it like pocket sands <laughs> the plant cell, um, you know, responders so that they don't know what's going on. Um, and then it just, it takes all of those nutrients and grows stronger. And so um, when you get rid of some of those genes that allow for the plant to um, facilitate that interaction that it would have with mycorrhizae, the powdery mildew basically can't even interact with the plant essentially um, in, in, in the way that it's that's supposed to work. Um, and so that also creates um, resistance by a gene not being there or a group of genes not being there, which is kind of interesting to consider too. Those are called susceptibility genes, but it's kind of a misnomer because it makes them susceptible to mycorrhizae, which you want as well. So yeah, uh, it's all complicated. Double-edged uh, sword, right? So to speak. Yeah, exactly, uh, right. Some some clones I uh, heard reported by a guy who works with soil sampling. He saw the same clone grown in uh, a greenhouse 
where one was covered in powdery mildew and the one right next to it that like the powdery mildew plant died and collapsed onto, even though it was the same exact genetic, the other one didn't get PM. And when he sampled the soil, there was like um, actinomycetes or something like different levels of that. And like the phylosphere generally was much healthier in the plant that didn't have PM versus the one that did have it. So even on the same genetic, if the phylosphere and soil conditions aren't proper, it can be more susceptible to PM because cultivation errors and things like that. Um, but before I pass it back to you, Matthew, I want to give Spartan Grown a chance to uh, give his final thoughts and shout out uh, before he goes to the Michigan Bros Grow Show and we wrap up this paper. Yeah, um, my only thoughts that I had to add was I was, was going to ask Matthew a question about if he'd seen anything about um, the nutritional aspects of if the plants had more silica available. I've heard uh, through Harley Smith, I think his last name is, from NPK Nutrients or Industries, NPK Industries that uh you know if the plant has sufficient silica that it'll build more of like almost like a, a pectin like substance instead of water substance between cell walls and that the it really makes it hard for powdery mildew hyphae to penetrate to even pull up any water if, but um i haven't he didn't cite a paper or anything he was just his own research so i was, I was just curious if uh, you'd seen anything to to substantiate any of that but other than that, I want to shout out the chat and everybody in, in uh, chat that comes to show up every week um, to, to, I mean, it's almost like a family. I'm seeing the same names again and again. And uh, I believe, I mean, I feel everybody on the panel is family to me. So it's always great to, to come on and, and catch up with everybody. And uh, I really like this episode and I really do like the digging through these articles. I just wish that we had a little bit more time to go through <laughs> before the show but uh i i got i got to a good i did some speed reading and picked out a few things that uh, really stood out to me uh, but it was cool i like uh, i like learning and i definitely learned a lot from just that one that one research paper there which kind of goes over a, a bunch of research papers anyways thanks everybody and uh i just think uh when we get when all said and done i think the best thing we can do is grow our own cannabis at home and uh, that's uh, if you're doing that, I think you're going a long ways to, to, to doing uh, the right thing when it comes to cannabis. So keep growing, everybody. And I'll see you guys in a little bit here over at the Michigan Girls Grow Show. Love you all. I'm out of here. Later, man. Sorry. Thank you so much for coming. Always great to have you. Yeah, I, um, you know, I do have an answer to that question. Basically, uh, silicon. Um, and some, you know, compounds with silicon in it. Uh, there's that robustness of the barrier that I've read about, and but also, uh, I guess it can, I guess it can be a pretty potent, uh, like um, has signaling capabilities at least in certain forms. Um, apparently, that was actually pretty interesting to read about. I am going to be putting that in a presentation too, but I still need to look into that that particular aspect a little bit more. But I'm, I'm very. Um, I'm very excited to see these kinds of, uh, um, I don't know, like these, these sort of um, newer or perhaps like less intuitive ways because the, the physicality makes sense because like we think like sand, right? But like, um, but having them being used in that way is kind of, is kind of interesting. Here, I actually accidentally uh, left the screen. So here, I just have one small section left, basically. So um, this figure eight here is kind of interesting. Basically with it, I want to explain that there's like, 
because we mentioned these signaling profiles, right? So like, what are the ways that the plant can prime itself? Well, um, plants have finite resources and they can't like move away from their threats. So the way that they, they uh, sort of outdo their competition is they either outgrow it or they have something toxic about them or they have something like with the with their uh, signals um, that they have to actually use to uh, figure out how much of a resource they're going to use, how intense a particular stressor is that they have to use to mitigate it. Because if they put all of their energy into one stressor and another stressor comes around, that's not going to be very stable. So plant researchers have found that plants have a very sophisticated way of doing this. It's also similar in our own bodies. We have these immune signal response agents. And so um, if it's not stimulated, then it's not primed, right? But then certain things happen, like, um, you know, the, the powdery mildew here, it penetrates into the plant, and perhaps uh, something in the cell recognizes the chitin, right, in, this, in the cell structure of the fungus, right? So fungal cells have chitin, um, and so that will trigger a response. So will it will for like insects, for example, you know, they put their uh, mouth part into the tissue and you now they might have saliva that affects this, right? That keeps the plant from recognizing it or recognizing it substantially. But, you know, if they do happen to come across it, then there will be this massive signaling. So they have, there are aspects of the physical structure of the powdery mildew that or the chemicals that they produce that are recognized and that stimulates a response. That's one way. Another way is from, as I see in the diagram, we have a mycorrhizal fungus is piriforma spora indica. Um, you know, so it being associated with the root microbiome will prime the production of certain compounds. And you might think to yourself that that's because, you know, this fungus is like letting them know or, or, or like, you know, massaging the plant's muscles, so to speak, metaphorically. But I'm not altogether sure that's what's happening. I think that um, you could interpret it that way, but it could very well be that, you know, because the immune system regulates the good guys too, so they don't become bad guys or they don't end up going somewhere they shouldn't. Um, you know, there's ver various microbes in your own body that are great where they are, but if they got into your blood, it would be a, a bad day perhaps at least, perhaps a bad life. Um, so the same thing happens in plants too. And I wonder if there might be some of that, the presence is merely causing this uptake in immune response um, to be induced essentially. And then the other way you would have this happen, so there's a genetic factor or a microbe that has genes that does this, but then you also have, um, you know, yourself as a cultivator, you might apply like jasmine, jasmonic acid, which is what the JA stands for. The JA is jasmonic acid, the ET is ethylene, and the uh, SA is salicylic acid. And so um, some signals are more associated with certain stressors or certain targets, certain organisms, and others um, with others. If you if you pump the wrong signal for the wrong situation, uh, that can be incredibly bad for the plant. So that's why, again, you know, you can't just say that something is resistant, you know, or, oh, we'll just upregulate this um, immune response compound. You know, everything will be fine. It'll, it'll prime the immune system. But if you prime it the wrong way, 
that's a bad day. And so again, I just want to really emphasize that that is not uh, necessarily going to be helpful for you. It can be very hurtful. Did you and find, I'm uh, sorry oh, to cut yeah. you off, but Smart mentioned uh, Harley, I think from NPK. And I think that he also mentioned something about like using uh, biostimulant uh, effects of something like humic or fulvic acid to help potentially uh, mitigate or prevent powdery mildew. And in your research, have you come across any research that substantiate that maybe humic or fulvics have some way of potentially uh, mitigating or preventing powdery mildew? Uh, yes, I definitely have. But in, on the top of my head, I can't remember a lot of details. And to sort of um, as a very good point to make right here while I was ranting about, you know, immune system pathways and priming, because, you know, I've just said in one breath that you have to be very careful, but on the other side, you know, there are different compounds that do different things and sometimes multiple things. And um, sometimes even uh, botanical research doesn't necessarily know all of the details. Uh, so like, I do want to give that caveat but that some compounds, you know, you might be able to get away with a more generalized response, um, you know, and it might be a safer option. Whereas if you like really uptick one particular um, compound, then it can be a lot more, you know, of this sort of like detrimental effect because it, 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 uh, it could even cause like, you know, something really hasty, like that causes like the plants uh, cells to, you know, lyse themselves or something. So the, the dose can be the poison sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. The dose yeah, is the poison. On, you're right. Yeah. And then in some cases, maybe it could accelerate versus prevent uh, infection, depending on what stage maybe the infection is in and things like that. Yeah. Like I had a conversation um, over social media recently where I was trying to explain that, you know, as a biotroph, as a powdery mildew has to, it can only interact with living plant material. It can't grow on dead plant material. It has to be going, growing on a plant that has its living cells that are getting sugars that it feeds on and, you know, other nutrients that it needs. Um, Which is bizarre because didn't you say it evolved from only yeah. being on dead material? Yeah, uh, that's the estimation anyways. That's the idea. And, and you know, it's, it's a good question because the real, like one of the traits that it has that um, lends credence to this uh, understanding is that it, particularly it has um, uh, pectinases, or I mean, sorry, cellulases that it shares with other, like a very similar phylogenetically related organisms. And so the chitinase would probably like the help, the first helpful thing, which is to just bore through the, um, the plant cells. And it's possible that powdery mildew in its earliest days, you know, or, or the ancestral powdery mildew uh, maybe it was a lot more destructive than it is now, you know, like uh, Botrytis, for example, is a necro it's a hemibiotroph. It can go biotrophy or necrotrophy. And so what it does is it will manipulate the plant. See, plants can't win. Um, this sophisticated, uh, you know, um, hypersensitive response that kills the powdery mildew and also viruses not very good for botrytis because botrytis literally triggers it on purpose, makes it think that, or in other ways, induces it um, inappropriately. So the plant will have its cell destroy itself. And then the botrytis is like, thanks for all of this nutrient matter that I'm now going to feed on. So damned if you do, damned if you don't, exactly. <laughs> in, in some sense. Um, one other question or comment I had to 
I've heard this reference a few times by Breeder Steve. He says uh, 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit. And I believe he does 10 minutes per day uh, for like several days in the first week. And then after that, he can lighten it up to maybe like 10 minutes or like 30 minutes a day for one day a week. But he's saying because it doesn't survive over that temperature, if he gets his greenhouses up to like, let's say 35 to 40 Celsius or like 95 to 100 Fahrenheit, then it will literally uh, kill off the powdery mildew. Um, so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that as far as a cultivation practice and is it something that would be um, feasible and implementable? And is that even actually true that it would uh, potentially work? You know, I haven't experienced that and I haven't read any research that supports that. Um, I do know that one of the things about powdery mildew that's sort of unique is it has the spores have a large proportion of them um, containing water. And I guess because a lot of spores, you know, require moisture to germinate, like just in the, in the group fungi. So, um, you know, it does really good or better in like uh, arid conditions to, to germinate and have greater success that way is the implication. Um, as far as humidity is concerned, I, I mean, temperature, I, I, I only can think of in solarization, you know, the UV radiation having a negative impact on the spores. Also, um, the powdery mildew doesn't do very well in like uh, full moisture, like 100% moisture, like wet, like wet you leaves. Spread it, will, sprayed it, yeah. It will drown the spores. The spores will drown. Which um, is like counterintuitive as I'll get out. Yeah. always think <laughs> moisture is going to cause powdery mildew, but then actually it will kill it if you completely submerge it for a certain period of time. So very interesting. Yeah. Do you have yeah. any final thoughts to wrap this uh, paper up and then we'll close it down? Um. Yeah, uh, just just a penny for your thoughts. One other thing that powdery mildew does that most people have never heard about is that it will cause cells to replicate their genome and become polyploid. Uh, and this is thought to basically up, it basically increase all of the good genes that will give the powdery mildew the nutrients it wants, um, essentially. And so that's kind of cool that people have never heard of before. Usually, when I talk about this, didn't even know that was possible. Yeah, at all. So. There you go. That's another cool, um, uh, cool and tip. terrifying, terrifying, too. terrifying facts about powdery mildew. Exactly. That's right. All right. Well, Matthew, where can the people find you? So you can find the presentation that I'm going to be doing on the uh, Future Canvas Projects Zero Two channel, FCPO Two. It will hopefully be on the 25th. Um, and you can find my work, which is often this kind of uh, entertaining stuff. My YouTube channel is Zenthanol. You can professionally uh, inquire about my work if you need help, consulting help on zenthanol.com. And you can find me on social media websites, Twitter and uh, Instagram at SyncAngel. Thank you so much. And uh, next up, we've got Noah the Grower. Yeah, yeah, it was an interesting conversation today. Um, I'm always learning new stuff. Um, yeah, I'm uh, Noah the Grow with two E's on Instagram. You can find me there and uh, see everybody next week. Looking forward to seeing you and happy to have you back. Hopefully everything's going well. And uh, it is kind of interesting that this is like pretty educational content, I would say at least. They're as educational as we can make it, but it's also, um, I guess, something that people are entertained by. So that's a good double whammy there that we could keep people hanging in here for two hours. We've had roughly about 100 people the whole night, and uh, it's great to see all of you. Thank you so much for coming. If you want to find me, I'm at Jack Greenstock on Cannabuzz, as well as Instagram. Jack underscore Greenstock is my backup account there and my name on Twitter. 
If you want to email me, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. And if you want a copy of the book, 50 Strains of Green, you could go to 50strains.com. I'm going to do the pre-order for 50 Strains of Purple once I've got a like, dummy copy myself from the printer. Um, I want to make sure it's all done, finished, and everything before I start taking pre-orders. And uh, then I'll get the prints going and sign and ship them. But with that being said, thank you all so much for coming. And for Dr. MJ, grow our love, everyone. And we will see you all next week. Peace and love, y'all. Keep growing.